Our world can feel chaotic and uncertain, but we don't have to live enslaved to fear. Christ has promised me and you his peace, and throughout Scripture has provided powerful tools and practical steps to help us experience greater freedom. I'm Jennifer Slattery, lead host of the Faith Over Fear podcast, inviting you to join me and my team as together we learn how to starve our fears and feed our faith. Subscribe at lifeaudio.com or wherever you access podcast content. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ. This morning we're continuing our look at Psalm 112. We've been looking at Psalm 112 over the course of the past few weeks, and we've been talking about what it looks like to have unshakable character as the Lord inspires us to have that, as the Lord empowers us to have that. And we've been talking about really what it, what it means to become enthusiastic for God's ways in a world that wants its own way. And today we're going to be spending our time primarily looking at verse 4 of Psalm 112. And in verse 4, there's a few things that we're shown, but one of the things that I think we're shown as we look at this verse is the concept of the Lord's presence being visible in our lives. And so the way I'm, I'm, I'm titling this or, or just what I'm calling this as I look at, at this verse and think of the application of it is, I see Jesus in you. Because is that not what we want others to be able to say? You know, as they look at our lives, as they look at how we go about life and how we interact with others and, and even how we just respond to the circumstances that come our way, we want others to be able to see Christ at work within us. And so as we've done in previous weeks, I'm going to continue to do so. I'm just going to read the whole psalm, all of Psalm 112. But again, our focus today is just going to be on verse 4. So Psalm 112, starting with verse 1, says this. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege to be able to look at your word together this morning. And as we continue our study of Psalm 112, and as we think about what it means to have unshakable character, what it means to follow your ways in the midst of a world that wants its own way, we pray, Lord, that we would understand what it looks like for people to be able to see you inside us. 
as we interact with others, as we go about living our life. Lord, we're grateful for this portion of Scripture, and we're grateful for the things that you reveal to us in it and through it. And again, Lord, we're just also grateful for the fact that you allow us to carve out a little time to just think about these things, because typically, as our, as our week progresses, there aren't a whole lot of voices in this world that are trying to point us in the direction of what your word states. And so, Lord, we know that we need to be intentional about setting aside time to worship you. We need to be intentional about spending time in your word. And so, Lord, as we've dedicated this time now to do so, we pray that by the power of your spirit that you'd speak to our minds and speak to our hearts and help us to put all other things aside as we simply just carve out a little bit of time to dedicatedly focus on you. And we thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When you meet somebody new... What kind of impression do you want to make when you're first meeting somebody new? What kind of impression do you want to make on that person as they're interacting with you for the first time? And maybe I could also ask this question this way. When you interact with people over the course of your life, what kind of impression do you want to leave with them when they have to describe what kind of man or woman you were, when they have to tell, when when they're asked, you know, to describe you and to just kind of Explain what motivated you. What kind of impression do you want to leave with others? Uh, During the course of his senior year of high school, my son Daniel started coming with me to our men's Bible study that we have um, once a month on Wednesday nights. And uh, those of you that have been part of that study, uh, you, you know that at the end of that, what we like to do is we like to spend a little time at the end of each of those evenings, just taking time to pray for any of the needs or any of the concerns that might be present in the group. And repeatedly, when he was asked if there was anything that the group could pray about for him, his answer was always the same. I kept a note in my phone each week of uh, the things that, that the men were praying about, and I noticed his answer was the same each time. He would say something essentially like this. He'd say, I'm in the final months of high school, and I'm praying that the Lord will help me finish strong. Most of my friends have no relationships with Jesus and no interest in spiritual matters. And then he would ask, I'm asking that the Lord would help me to shine like a light in the darkness to my friends that do not know him. And so the men of our church would pray with Daniel over that specific thing. And I was thinking about that this week in looking at this portion of Scripture, because one of the things that I think this portion of Scripture from Psalm 112, when we look at what it says in verse 4, I think one of the things it invites us to do is to just basically ask the question of our own hearts, is it our desire to shine as the light of Christ in the midst of a dark world? Is that something that we personally desire? And if we do desire that, practically speaking, do you ever wonder how best to go about doing that? Do you ever wonder, like, what, what's the best way to do that? You know, there's, there are ways to do that. There are other ways that we would say maybe, maybe wouldn't be ideal One of the things that I've discovered in my interactions with others is that there are a lot of stereotypes programmed into the minds of some of the people that the Lord has brought into my life. And what I mean by this, I I have noticed that many of them believe very inaccurate things about followers of Christ because of the ways in which they've seen us portrayed sometimes in media and sometimes in other contexts. And I see this most often when people find out that I'm a pastor. So in my own life, when people find out that I'm a pastor, that's always a very unique experience. And there are several people 
uh, gathered here with us today that can identify with that same sort of thing. Because people don't know what to do with that information. I actually had an experience this past Monday where someone, for the first time, they've known me for a couple months, and then they found out for the first time that I was a pastor, and they don't know what to do. Typically, what they do is they start retracing every conversation to try and figure out, what have I said, and how many times did I swear, right? They're like, I didn't know you were a pastor. I wouldn't have sworn, right? So what I actually do is I I honestly do my best to keep that information to myself, at least for a little bit, until I give a new acquaintance the chance to just get to know me before they start making some sort of assumptions or, or trying to fit me into some sort of a stereotype. But it's funny, when people discover uh, what I do, I sometimes get comments like this, oh, you're actually funny. And they seem, they seem surprised by that. You're actually funny. It's like some people think so, some people definitely don't. But okay, that's fine. Or I, I got this from one of my neighbors once. We had, uh, they had something in the, their backyard and they noticed that I was like just kind of singing some of the songs they had playing over their radio. And uh, she said, I have to admit that I'm actually surprised that as a pastor, you like good music. <laughs> That's what she's, I was like, what is that supposed to mean? Like, what am I supposed to do with that information? You're surprised that as a pastor, I like good music? What kind of world do you think I live in, right? But what I've learned is that, unfortunately, when you think about the stereotype, right, some people expect me as a pastor to be harsh. Some people definitely expect that. Uh, some people think that I am continually serious. Now, I know you don't think that, okay? But there, believe it or not, there's some people in this world that think that I would be continually serious. And then some people, I think, just in general, would say, all right, if you're serving in that role, you're probably disconnected from real-world issues. I certainly think that that's part of the stereotype that I've experienced. And I think people sometimes are not prepared for the fact that, that I've experienced the same exact ups and downs as they have, the exact same thing. I think people are shocked when they discover I could actually sympathize with what they're facing because I've gone through the same exact things in my life. And so I have to admit, I love upending some of those stereotypes. It does tend to be a little bit fun. And I, I guess a, a follow-up question I could ask related to that is we're talking about this idea of people seeing Christ in us. But do you think, and I, I certainly think this is the case, but does demonstrating genuine sympathy for the struggles and challenges of others help point them to Christ? I think it does. You know, I certainly believe it could be one of the ways in which the Lord shines the light of his gospel through you and through me. You know, as we call ourselves followers of Christ, as we call ourselves Christians in the midst of a world that will have certain stereotypes that have been reinforced in their minds as to what a Christian is actually like. And when you demonstrate sympathy for the struggles and the challenges that those that the Lord's placed in your life, when you demonstrate sympathy for those struggles and for those challenges, I think that it can be a wonderful way that the Lord can shine the light of his gospel through your words, through your demeanor, through the actions that you take. And in fact, when you look at what Scripture tells us, it actually tells us very specifically that Jesus delights to show us sympathy as one who understands what we're going through. When you look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, let me read this for us. It's a very interesting verse about what, what goes on in the heart of Christ related to us. But Scripture tells us, and we were looking at this at our Bible study on Wednesday night, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So it's saying he never gave in to that sin but he knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to go through the things that you and I endure. 
During his earthly ministry, Scripture makes it clear that Jesus was tempted in every way possible. And on Wednesday night, we were talking about the main categories of temptation. And the main categories of temptation are these. You have the lusts of the flesh, you have the lusts of the eyes, and you have the boastful pride of life. Just think about that in regard to the things that that we personally struggle with. The lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And Scripture tells us that Jesus is sympathetic to our struggle because when he was here on earth in the midst of his earthly ministry, it says, in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he experienced every category of temptation you could think of, every category of temptation that there happens to be, and yet he never gave in to any one of those temptations. And when you and I come before him, One of the wonderful things that I think Scripture is trying to help us to understand is that we could be confident that we're coming before one who understands our struggles. You know, we're not coming before a Savior who is aloof. We're not coming before a Savior who is not able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Scripture is very clear in saying He absolutely sympathizes with your weaknesses. He looks at us with compassion because He fully understands what it's like to walk a mile in our shoes. He knows exactly what it's like. He knows what it's like to go through every aspect of the human experience on this earth. Jesus knows what life on this earth is like. Our life on this earth, our earthly experience, it's not a mystery to him because he inserted himself into that experience willingly and joyfully, looking forward to what the outcome of it would be. And so now, think about this in the personal application kind of way. Now, as his followers, what we're being invited to do as we observe what Jesus did, and as we think about what Scripture says is going on in the background, that as we pray to Him, we're coming to one who, who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Now what we're being encouraged to do as His followers, we're being invited to walk as He walked. We're invited to go through our life walking as He walked. He set the pattern for us. He empowers us to go through life in a particular way. And we can go through... You know, when you think about the options that are presented before us, we can certainly go through life embracing the mindset and embracing the behaviors that the rest of the culture embraces. That's the easy road to take. That's the road that most people take. But what Scripture is revealing to us is that Jesus gives us His strength so that we can aim higher than that. His Spirit empowers us to live a godly life in the midst of a very obviously godless culture. And I think you and I as time goes on, should expect to be tested more and more in that area. I think your decision and my decision to follow Christ in the midst of a culture that doesn't value what he values is going to be tested in ways that are probably pretty similar to what the first century Christians experienced and endured. I think you and I need to have kind of steel spines about that while also having soft hearts as we go through it. But Christ is inviting us to walk as he walked in the midst of a godless culture. He's calling us to be godly. I love what the Apostle Paul told Titus. Titus was a a pastor who was serving on the island of Crete. And by the way, have you ever heard somebody called a Cretan? Do you you know where that phrase comes from if you call somebody a Cretan? How would you like if, I don't know what town you're from, um, but, you know, I I grew up primarily in Carbondale, Pennsylvania. And if it was a universal insult for people to say, oh, you're a, you're a Carbondalian, right? I'd be like, hey, you know, don't, don't rip on where I came from. Like, why are you saying that? 
Well, throughout history, people rip on people from Crete because they were known for a couple things. One of the things they were known for was being lazy, and another thing they were known for was being drunkards. So it's like they're lazy drunkards who are full of themselves and don't care about other people. If you, it's like, if you want to be a lazy drunkard, move to Crete. And so it's funny, sometimes when I talk to uh, new pastors, I remember once when I was in college, I, there was this, this guy that I knew, wasn't really a friend, more of an acquaintance, but I remember he would always talk about this perfect context that he hoped to pastor in someday. Perfect context. Well, Titus didn't get that option. Titus pastored in Crete. And Crete was an area, it's like, it's like Titus, I've got a, a job for you. You're going to serve among a, a culture filled with lazy drunkards. What do you think? And uh, I don't know what Titus thought, but I know that Paul felt the need as the Spirit gave him unction to do so, to give Titus a bit of a pep talk. And when you look at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, Titus is given some counsel here that the Spirit of God gave the Apostle Paul to give to him, but it's counsel that applies to you and I living in the midst of a godless culture as well. And it tells us, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our uh, the, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, meaning you know we're not just talking about some future period of time. Saying in the present age, this is how we've been empowered by God to live. So by the grace of God, we who have received the gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, we are being actively trained by the Holy Spirit to show the world a picture of the heart of Christ. That is a training that's taking place in your life and in your heart right now. If you know Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is training you and empowering you to live that kind of way. He's helping you to value things you didn't value. He's helping you to do things you wouldn't naturally do. He's helping you to care about things that the rest of this world does not care about at all. The Spirit of God is preparing us to renounce the values of this world that we once embraced. You know, when I look at all sorts of things that this world embraces, I could think to a season of my life where I think, I embraced those things at one point too. Why do I see differently now? It's not because there was a day when all of a sudden I got smart. The only reason I see differently now, the only reason I see or that I value things differently now is just the very things that the Apostle Paul is saying in Titus 2, that, we're, that by the grace of God I'm being trained to see differently, think differently, and live differently, and so are you. The Spirit of God is empowering us to renounce worldly values that we once embraced. He's showing us that our greatest passion should not be for the lusts of our flesh, This world chases after the lusts of their flesh, the lust of their eyes, the boastful pride of life. But we're being empowered to live with self-control in the midst of a world that that acts like it's out of control. And sometimes that's exactly what I feel when I I look at, you know, just different news reports or different things. I I think, boy, that is so out of control. That is out of control. And yet Scripture says what? The Spirit of God is empowering you as a follower of Christ someone who trusts in Jesus to live with self-control in the midst of a world that acts like it's out of control. And we're also told that he's filling our, hope, our, our hearts with hope as we wait with the confident expectation that Jesus is indeed returning very soon. Now, I don't know when Christ is going to return. I don't know if it'll be in my natural lifetime or not. I'd be wonderful if it was. 
But what I do know is that he's going to fulfill that promise. Just as he fulfilled the promise to come the first time, he promised that he's coming again. And Paul says, this is what we have to look forward to. I don't know if you do this. This is kind of a weird quirk that I have, but I would recommend doing this if you don't do this. I purposely pepper my calendar throughout the year with something to look forward to. I'll put something in there just so I have the opportunity to look forward to it. Because I've noticed how my mind and my heart is wired. I like having something to look forward to. So, you know, our family's going to be taking some vacation this week. Well, I look forward to this because you know what I'm going to do this week? I'm going to sit around a campfire. I'm going to hang out with my family, including my extended family. I'm going to read books. I always say I'm going to read books. You know what happens when you bring a book to a campfire? You talk to whoever's there with a book in your hand, or you fall asleep with a book on your chest, right? That's what you do. But I'll have books to use as a pillow or just to have something in my hand to fidget with. But it's going to be wonderful. I look forward to that. It's a week I look forward to all year. I love when we camp together. And the Apostle Paul says, what do we have in Christ? We have the blessed hope of Christ returning to look forward to. That's something I'm very much looking forward to, and that's something that in the midst of, if you feel like this world is out of control or if this world is disappointing you in some way, keep in mind that this isn't your ultimate hope. We have the hope of Christ returning and restoring all things, and that's what I'm looking forward to. And by His grace, I pray it's very soon. But when you look at what the Scripture reveals to us, we're, we're, we're shown that the Spirit of God... In the meantime, as he's doing this work to train us to to live in godliness and to value things that he values, he's also using your life and my life to paint a very visible picture of the miraculous change that God has made within us. He's causing us to react to people who test us. He's causing us uh, to react to the circumstances that try us in a brand new way, in a way that is unlike we would have reacted to these things if we were just living in the flesh. We who once walked in darkness are now being divinely enabled to shine as the light of Christ in a very dark place, like Titus was on the island of Crete, like you and I are in our present context. The darkness is dispelled as the light of the gospel brings illumination. And coming back to where we started in Psalm 112, you have the psalmist When you look at verse 4 of Psalm 112, he makes a point to emphasize the ways in which the Lord shines his light through his people. And the way he emphasizes that is this. He wrote it this way. He says, in verse 4 of Psalm 112, he says, light dawns in the darkness for the upright. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. And he says, he is gracious, merciful, and righteous. So as the children of God demonstrate the heart of God, what's happening is light is going out from our lives. It's the light of Christ. Insight is being brought to the unaware. Understanding is being brought to those who are choosing to live in willful ignorance. And the Lord's shining that light through us. The psalmist brings that up in, in Psalm 112 as well. And I love how, this, how the Holy Spirit inspired the psalmist to highlight three very specific ways then an upright person can make the nature of God visible to those who are observing their life. The psalmist tells us that those who, ultimately we know, those who have been redeemed by Christ, that we've been empowered to show this world the grace of God, the mercy of God, and the righteousness of God. Those are the three categories of of light shining that the psalmist brings up. The fact that we show the world the, the grace of God, the mercy of God, and the righteousness of God. 
Now, what's the distinction between the three of those things? What's distinct from, between grace and mercy? What's distinct between mercy and righteousness? What's distinct between the three of these things? Well, the grace of God is shown every time he blesses us with a gift we don't deserve. So every time you're blessed with a gift you don't deserve, you could look at that and say, okay, this is evidence of grace. So the air we breathe is a gift. I don't deserve air, right? I don't deserve air. Some of you wish I would stop dispensing so much hot air, right? It's too warm in the summer for the pastor's hot air, right? But the air we breathe is a gift. The soil that we walk upon, the soil that we grow our food in, that's a gift of God's grace as well. But if we want to be even more specific and take this to an even deeper level, and maybe a a level that some people would say was not always obvious to them, the ability to understand our need for a Savior and the ability to understand the gospel that reveals Him to us, this is also evidence of the grace of God. These are things that are spiritually discerned. If you even care about those things, it's only because the Spirit of God revealed them to you. Because Scripture tells us we were living with blinders on. We weren't paying attention to these things. But by the grace of God, now we realize, wait, I actually need salvation. I need a Savior. By the grace of God, the gospel becomes something that's clear to our minds. And so I always wonder, as someone who has been a grateful recipient of the grace of God, what does it look like to freely dispense that grace so that Jesus can be seen within us and then receive the glory? Does anyone listen to uh, talk radio or podcasts that are basically talk radio on demand? few of us. I was listening to something the other day, and a guy called into the host, and he said, I want to do something unconventional. I'm not really sure what the best way to go about this was. And so the host said, okay, you know, what are you thinking about doing? And he, he said, my wife and I have been praying about something, and we actually, he said, we know this family... We don't know them super well. We just know them a little bit, but enough to know about them and enough to know their situation and enough to know about the wonderful daughter that they're raising. And we look at this young lady. She's somebody that's very competent in a variety of areas, also someone who demonstrates great character. And we feel convinced that the Lord wants us to help them in a very specific way. So the host said, all right, well, what are you thinking of doing? They said, it's our understanding that, you know, she's about 14 years old, and it's our understanding that they are going to have a very challenging time trying to put her through college, yet she very much wants to go to college. And we were thinking about this, and even though we don't know them, we were thinking of blessing them with a gift, a five-figure gift that will largely defray the cost of her going to college. And we're thinking, that's going to seem like, the, and we don't want any recognition or anything like that from them, but we're not really sure what the best way to go about blessing them with this gift would be. We don't want this to insult somebody. We don't want this to be something that they feel like there's some string attached to it or anything like that. And so then they had a conversation of practical ways that you go about blessing somebody with a, a very large gift like that. And I thought it was a really interesting conversation. How many times do you hear about somebody saying, what would be the mechanics or the, the best way to bless somebody with a five-figure gift? How often do you hear that? Almost never, right? But I thought about that and I thought, wow, what a wonderful example of the grace of God being demonstrated in their generosity. Giving a gift, but saying you don't have to deserve it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to give us anything in return. We literally just want to give this because we feel like the Lord's impressing upon our hearts the desire to bless your daughter and bless your family in the same regard. 
And I think to myself, and I think this is useful for us to just kind of wrestle with, but who could we bless for Christ's glory? Who could we bless without asking for anything in return? Who could we bless without asking for a single thing in return? Or maybe what opportunities has the Lord put right in front of us right now that he's already been prodding our hearts to act upon? Who could we bless without asking anything in return? I also like the fact that when you look at what the psalmist says here, that in addition to demonstrating the grace of God, he also makes it clear that the upright are empowered to make the mercy of God visible through the very lives that they're leading. Now, the mercy of God, this is the distinction between grace and mercy, but the mercy of God is seen in all kinds of circumstances whenever we don't receive the punishment or condemnation that we really deserve. So grace is getting a gift that we don't deserve, and mercy is not receiving the punishment that we do deserve. And most clearly, the grace, or excuse me, the mercy of God is shown to us through Jesus Christ, who took our condemnation upon himself at the cross. And Christ, who was willing to take that condemnation upon himself at the cross so that we could become objects of, of mercy in the eyes of God and not objects of wrath, he instructs us to demonstrate mercy. And there's a couple examples of this. One is found in Luke chapter 6. The other is found in Matthew chapter 5. But Jesus said to his followers, he said, be merciful even as your father is merciful. So this is something, he's not mincing words as he says that. He's looking at you and me and he's saying, all right, be merciful as your father is merciful. So think about the fact that the God our father has demonstrated mercy to us in Jesus Christ. So since he is merciful to us, we're called to be merciful. Meaning that even though certain people might deserve punishment or even though certain people might deserve some form of condemnation from us, be merciful. Be merciful. Rich Mullins, one of my favorite singers, had a song uh, that he called Let Mercy Lead. And he thought, you know, I want this to be one of the dominant characteristics people see in my life because I think it will point them to Jesus. Let mercy lead. You know, uh, he, he wanted his words to be seasoned with it. He wanted his life to be seasoned with it. Jesus also said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, he said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It's the idea of, like, your, your life will be better if you are merciful. It's more joyful. It's actually even more happy if you're merciful. If the Lord wasn't merciful by nature, where would we be? If God wasn't merciful by nature, you and I would have no hope. A moment ago, we were talking about this concept of hope. We would have no hope if he wasn't merciful by nature. But because he delights to show us his mercy, our hope is secure. We who once lived as his enemies are offered adoption into his eternal family. And we who once were under condemnation are are able to find liberation through Jesus Christ. And so now our Lord is calling us and he's empowering us to emulate his example. And there are people, and I just want you to think about this for a second, just in regard to your own life. But there are people in your life that I think are probably a bit challenging for you to endure on a daily basis. And by the way, there's nobody in your life that's there by accident and by the way, why are some of you looking at the people next to you and shaking your head? Because I see several of you doing that in several sections of the room. I kid not. Um, why are you messing with your neighbor today, right? But the truth is there, are, there really are people in your life that you'd look at and you're like, all right, that person honestly tests me. Or maybe you could even look at your life and, and say, there are people in your life that it maybe even feels like they've set themselves against you as your enemies. Are there people like that that you experience? I have a few You know, in my mind, I'm thinking, they're not my enemy, but I feel like I'm theirs. 
And you look at that and you realize, okay, in Christ, I'm actually called to show them mercy. It's not always what I feel like showing them. You know, there are people in my life and there are people in your life who probably excel at getting on your last nerve. And then you look at what Christ says. He's not saying, be merciful only to those that you find pleasant and like a fragrant aroma. You know, be merciful to your child who listens, but be harsh to your child who doesn't. Be merciful to your neighbor who's cooperative and doesn't set off fireworks at 1.30 a.m. You know, you look at the people that the Lord has, has brought into our lives and we realize, all right, none of these relationships are by accident. Scripture is very clear that we were born when we were born on purpose and we live where we live on purpose. There's no single person you've ever met that was an accidental meet or an accidental relationship. And Jesus reminds us that there is greater happiness in responding with the spirit of mercy than in responding with the spirit of spite. You go through your life being one of those people that just responds to others with the spirit of spite, that sour face is going to, or that sourness is going to turn your face a different direction. It's going to become very obvious that that's what's in your heart. It will show up on your face. It will show up in your light, in your life, and it will, it will not be something that points to the light of Christ that he wants to demonstrate from you. You know, I'll never forget one Saturday afternoon. Many of you know I grew up in a context where my father owned a small grocery store in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And I always worked at my dad's grocery store, um, you know, a few nights a week, but I always worked on Saturdays. Saturday was like a guarantee that I was going to work there. And I remember one Saturday afternoon, I was working at my father's store, and I think it was probably about 10 or 11 when this particular event occurred, but there was a woman that seemed to have some difficulty walking. And she had just gone through the store, and she had purchased a whole whole bunch. I mean, her, she had just paid for everything that she, she had purchased or everything that she had uh, acquired in the store, and she had a very abnormally full cart, and yet she was having a difficult time walking, and she was bringing this toward the front door. And my father looked at me, and he said, hey, stop what you're doing and help her bring that cart to her car. And I looked, and I thought, oh, yeah, he's right. Somebody needs to help her. And so I was like, okay, I'll stop. There was only one problem with what he instructed me to do. So when you go to grocery stores now, they're all pretty well thought out. It's not like usually a building that's retrofitted to be a grocery store. However, our grocery store was an old building in Scranton, Pennsylvania, that didn't have ramps and smooth entrances and things like that. In fact, there were two steps that you had to walk down when you went out the front door to get down to the sidewalk. And I took that heavy cart, and I remember it was, it was jam-packed. The thing was completely full, as full as, as stuff stacked on top of stuff on top of stuff. And I remember thinking, okay, i got to be careful as I, I bring this out to the car. And I took that cart, and I pushed it down the front two steps to bring it out to the sidewalk. And um, I should have pulled it down those steps. I know that now. You know how I know? Because when I pushed it, down those steps, instead of pulling it down those steps, it dumped everywhere, literally everywhere. I think the entire city of Scranton, Pennsylvania was covered in groceries. But I remember looking at it, and I was, I, it was one of those things where you watch it happening in slow motion, and you know there's nothing you could do to stop it, and you're, you're just, you feel your heart sink, and you're like, buy groceries. <laughs> and uh, 
And it all tipped over, and I still remember the cans rolling all around the sidewalk, rolling out into the street. I remember the glass bottles of different things that she had purchased smashing. So stuff's smashing, stuff's rolling, and I'm watching this lady who had just purchased like a year's worth of groceries, it looked like, seeing everything she purchased scattered all around Cedar Avenue in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And you can imagine if, like, that woman... If she responded to me harshly, I would have felt like it was very justified. I would have felt like, obviously, you're, you're upset. You just purchased a whole bunch of groceries, and I just messed it all up for you. And uh, if she expressed frustration or anger toward me, it wouldn't have shocked me, but this is how she responded. With compassion, with mercy for me as a 10- or 11-year-old boy who was trying to help her with her groceries, trying to help her bring them to her car. And she even mixed in a little grace with her mercy, And she gave me a 75-cent tip because I helped pick all the stuff up and went and got new cans and stuff like that and new bottles of everything. She gave me a 75-cent tip. So I made her life a little inconvenient instead of convenient, but she showed me mercy and she showed me some grace. And I think as a recipient of God's mercy, you and I can look for opportunities to show it to others. And those opportunities come up unexpectedly. She did not expect She did not expect her groceries to be dumped all over Cedar Avenue in Scranton. That was an unexpected opportunity, but it's also a moment where you get to see what's in somebody's heart when they get an unexpected test. And so that unexpected test, her response was to show me mercy and to show me grace. And I think for you and I, don't wait until you feel like someone deserves it. Show them mercy even though you feel like they don't deserve it, right? Because God showed his mercy to us when we were living how? Scripture says we were living not just ambivalent to God, we were actually living as his enemies. That's how Scripture describes our state before knowing Christ. We were living as God's enemies, and he showed mercy to his enemies. And then the psalmist tells us one more thing, and this is where I want to finish this morning. But in addition to the grace and mercy that the psalmist shows us that that we should demonstrate as, as the light of Christ in this world, the psalmist tells us that the upright person demonstrates righteousness And ultimately, we know that's because the Lord has made that person righteous. We're not talking about self-righteousness here. Self-righteousness is a form of personal idolatry where we act like we don't need a Savior, where we act like we could go through life and just do it all ourselves, and and we could get it all right in our own strength, and that's not the case at all. It's like acting like Jesus is unnecessary for our righteousness. The kind of righteousness that a person of character learns to demonstrate is the outpouring of a supernaturally changed heart. That's the kind of righteousness that's being spoken of here in this passage. So when we become a new creation in Jesus Christ, what ends up happening is He changes our motives, He changes our goals, and He changes our priorities. The things we once value change from the inside. We who once valued wickedness now value integrity. Not because we got smart or wise, but because Christ transformed our heart. We who once prioritized vanity start learning to prioritize holiness. And this is because the righteousness of Christ was deposited into our life the moment we came to faith in Him when His Spirit indwelled us. Love what 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us. There it says, for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that a fascinating verse? Do you, you know, if, if somebody said, tell us about yourself, And would you ever think to reply to them, well, I've become the righteousness of God? I think they'd be like, oh, so you're crazy. (laughs) But if you look at what Scripture says, what does it say? So that we might become the righteousness of God. 
Jesus, what did he do? He took our sin upon himself so he could deposit righteousness into our bankrupt spiritual account. We who were lost are found. We who were unholy are made righteous, were declared righteous in his sight. And your demonstration of Christ-empowered righteousness in the midst of this fallen world, in the midst of this depraved world, I think it's going to stand out in ways that might surprise you. So as we wrap this up, let's just think about this for a second. Our desire to live with, with unshakable character is not a desire that originated within our own thinking. That's God's desire for us. And the pattern for holy living that he wants to see exemplified among his children, that's demonstrated for us here in Psalm 112. In particular, we see it demonstrated in verse 4 of Psalm 112. And I just want to encourage us to do this. In, ref- in, in uh, recognition of what Christ has done for us, take this example to heart. Because it's a Christ-centered example. It's something pointing us to Christ. And may believers and unbelievers who observe your life be able to say without reservation, I see Jesus in you. That's the testimony that the Lord wants us to have in this world. That's the testimony that he wants others to be able to make of us as they observe the work that he's doing in us. And in fact, when God the Father looks at you and me, That's exactly what he sees in regard to everyone who is trusted in Christ. He sees Jesus in you. I see Jesus in you. That's the desire of God for us. And that's that's something that he's calling us ultimately to live with the desire that we have as well, that others would see Christ living within us as we go about our life in this world. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, and for the privilege that it is to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this today and to think about the things that you reveal to us in it. Because we know, Lord, that these are things that are spiritually discerned. These are the type of things that, naturally speaking, why would we even care about this stuff? I don't think we would care about this. I think the only thing I would care about, if not for the presence of your Holy Spirit in my life, would be selfish things. I would drift towards selfish motives, I might paint things up on the outside to look good, but I know where my heart would be. Apart from you changing my heart, I know where my heart was. And so, Lord, when we look at a portion of Scripture like this, we pray that it wouldn't just be words that we think about for a brief period of time and and say, that's nice. But that we would actually look at this and say, all right, this is a description of the radical transformation that you desire to have taken place or facilitated in the life of those who submit themselves over to you. So, Lord, I pray that you would continue this transformation within me, that you would train me to walk in godliness. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ in this room, that you do the same for them. I pray for those that don't know you, that they would see the light of Christ shining through your people, and that you would remove the blinders from their eyes so that they would recognize their need for the Savior as well. Lord, we know that you're being patient with us. You tell us in your word that you're being patient because you're giving us every opportunity to come to faith in your Son. Lord, most people in this world go through life with faith in themselves. They believe in themselves. They believe in what they do and what they see. And what you're trying to do is help us to see things from your eyes and have confidence in what you've done on our behalf. And that's a very different way to think. And it results in a very different way to live. So, Lord, we pray that as we seek to be men and women who allow your Son, Jesus Christ, to be 
visibly seen in the way we live our lives and the way we treat people and the things we prioritize. We pray that you would continue to empower that kind of mindset. And again, Lord, we're just so grateful for your presence with us. We're grateful for your grace. You have blessed us with so many gifts that we do not deserve. We're grateful for your mercy. Lord, we deserve punishment from you. We deserve condemnation. We deserve to live forever separated from you as your enemies. And yet you offer us the opportunity to be reconciled to you through faith in your son, Jesus Christ. So we pray that we would not reject that opportunity. Lord, you know the hearts of each and every one of us gathered here today. And Lord, I have no doubt that there, that there I mean, in a mixed group like this, there's got to be somebody that at this point has lived distant from you. And Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they would see that light, that they would see their need for your son, Jesus Christ, to be their savior, that they'd stop living for themselves. They'd give their heart completely over to you. Lord, I pray that you'd prompt that in their mind and their heart right now. And that that transformative work that you do in the life of anyone who submits themselves over to you would begin in their heart and their life today. And that as they interact with others, that those who are observing that change taking place would be able to say, I see Jesus in you. And Lord, we pray that by your grace that that would be the testimony of our lives. And that that would be what we care most about in this world honoring and glorifying your name. So, Lord, thank you for just the opportunity to start off our week looking at your word and seeing these things together. Lord, it's so wonderful to be able to just pause from thinking about the things we usually think about and to to just focus on, on you, to focus on your word, to put the distractions aside and just allow you to speak to us. And Lord, as we approach this day and as we approach this week and ultimately as we approach the rest of our lives, we pray that we would do so with you at the forefront. We love you, Lord. We're thankful for your presence with us today. We pray that you'd illuminate the truth of your word to our hearts so that we would understand our need for your son, Jesus Christ, and that we would serve you faithfully in every context you place us in. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm Billy Yancey, entrepreneur, fitness cowboy, father, retired Navy cornerback, and now podcast host. Listen to my new show, Billy and the Goat, on Life Audio. Happy listening. What do you do when your world is falling apart? How do you march when it would be easier to stay where you are and die? Join me every week on the March or Die podcast, and we'll discuss that and so much more. 